One, the master, anything you can do. Let me take you away from all this. His hands twirled round each other like escaping doves, the gesture expansive, confident, seeming to take in not just the alleyway in which they stood, but the entire planet Earth. The open door of the TARDIS framed him in honey and gold. Um, Faye said, and looked decidedly uncomfortable. No. The doctor blinked. What? Not that I'm not grateful, she said hastily. Of course I am. God, I've never been so scared as when the... What did you call them? The Caliganosity, he said, still with that bewildered expression. Though that was just a fragment of a fragment of true Caliganosity. I have no idea what it was doing on this world. There's supposed to be a myth, a bogeyman from the universe's edge. It didn't feel like a myth, she said, thinking of the way the air had bent round its mandibles, sound and light distorting as if muddled by a paintbrush. Everything felt frayed around it, as if it was... Picking apart reality, the doctor said. That's what they do. They feast on it, like moths in a wardrobe, unraveling space from time and swallowing it down, or so the stories say. He frowned. But that's why you should come. There's a whole universe out there, a whole universe of things like that. Oh no, the doctor said, grinning. Much worse. She just looked at him. His smile disappeared. No, Doctor, it's a tempting offer, but I have a life here, I have friends and I have family, and I don't want to disappear down an alleyway and have them wondering where I went. Time machine, the Doctor said, taking a step towards her, his voice almost wheedling. I can have your back before they even notice you're gone. But I'll notice, won't I? Anger ghosted through his voice, so quick she wasn't sure if she'd even heard it. I'm offering you the... And then his tone changed back to normal, a magician again, with the grin of someone producing something from nothing. Come on, what could be here that's better than... Me, she interrupted, and now she was angry. Me and a whole life that I've built. You've got your life, and I'm sure it's crazy and beautiful and full of adrenaline and... and nebulas or whatever, but that's your stuff, not mine, so thank you, but no... He shook his head. I'm doing this wrong. I'm doing this wrong. He wrapped a knuckle against the phone box behind him. Did I mention it's bigger on the inside? Yeah, Faye said, turning away and sticking her hands into her jacket pockets. She could still feel the icy burn where the caliginosity had grazed her skin. So are a lot of things. Maybe you don't see that as much as you should. The Time Lord watched her go hunched against the Belfast chill, and removed a pen and a scrap of paper from the pocket of his suit. He scratched out a name and sighed. All right. Next. They'd saved the day. Again. We're getting to make a habit of this, Time Lord, said Cassie Belmont, 23 years old, formerly a pilot in the third Neptunian Airborne, and now semi-regular resident of the most incredible ship she'd ever seen, what say we make it official? Hmm? The doctor said, distractedly. He had flung the doors of the TARDIS wide so they could watch the last of the cyberships combust in the atmosphere, roses of gold and red staining the new Parisian sky. Hundreds of metres below, people were emerging shakily from their houses, staggering from the rubble, clinging to their loved ones, and the doctor stared down at them, a slight smile playing around those sharp, angular features. 
Nothing, Cassie said, sighing. Funny how he could notice a misalignment in an orbital laser from ground level, but ignore what was right in front of his face. Just, congratulations, you did it. You defeated the Cybermen, and in the nick of time, too. A trifle, my dear, he said, flicking an imaginary spot of dust from his sleeve. Cybermen are stubborn, but unimaginative. Their plan to tear away the Earth's atmosphere so they could harvest the suffocated dead was flawed from the start. All I had to do was turn New Paris's weather engines into an atmospheric shield to keep their air in, and then reprogram the Cybermen's electrostatic accelerator to target their own ships, tearing them apart molecule by molecule. Yes, Cassie said. I know, I was standing beside you when you did it. He raised an eyebrow at her. But it was still really impressive, she said quickly. New Paris is saved. He smiled and breathed deeply. It is, isn't it? Such a gorgeous dawn. Another cybership exploded, raining down debris on the city. Yes, Cassie said, then cleared her throat uncomfortably. Although, the eyebrow again. What is it, Cassie? Nothing, she said. The TARDIS continued its slow spin, and Cassie caught a glimpse of what lay beyond new Paris's shields. The airless, icy fields, the blackened sky, and floating, frozen dead. It's just a pity we couldn't stop them from stealing the rest of the Earth's atmosphere, that's all. Ah, the doctor said. Yes, well, next. I can't tell you how wonderful this has been, Doctor, said Edwin Dufresne, formerly of the space station Faithen's Choice, and now staring around the TARDIS's control room as if trying to drink in its splendour one last time. The vaulted, soaring ceiling, the dark and sweet-scented wood panelling, the honey-gold lamps, a handspan above their heads, so different from the austere corridors of the choice. In preparation for his return to the space station, he had dressed in his old plasmic engineer uniform, which was a far cry from the peculiar get-ups their adventures had required. Victorian suits, deep-sea exploration gear, even the robes of the space pope, though that was entirely by accident and had not impressed the space Vatican one bit. It was a wrench leaving it all behind, but that's what parting company with the doctor meant. Such wonders, Abilene murmured, lowering her second head in reverence, and such terrors, like the burning of Madrigar, Edwin whispered, running a hand through the goatee he had definitely always wanted to grow, and not just because the doctor had one, and the cruciform in you. Gosh! We were lucky to survive that one, weren't we, Abilene? I like to think I helped, the doctor said, leaning back against the burnished bronze console, and Edwin could only agree. The look on the Dalek Emperor's face will keep me warm on long nights to come. But of course, doctor, Abilene said, rubbing her forelimbs together with a rasp. We'd be dead a hundred times over if not for you. The universe would be, too, and even though we must return to our own time, it warms my hemolymph to know that you are out there somewhere keeping us all safe. The Time Lord smiled that rare, mysterious smile that felt like a victory every time it came to call. Well, that is the work I have chosen. Out of all of the many worthy pursuits I could have followed with my genius and many lives, I choose to help the weak the less fortunate. His eyes rested on Edwin for a second. The foolish. What could be nobler? And now, he clapped his hands, we have arrived at your time. 
The abruptness didn't surprise Edwin, nor did the way the doctor's smile vanished as if it had never existed. The Time Lord was famously terrible at goodbyes. So many planets saved, only for the doctor and his companions to slip away before anyone noticed. It made other things easier, too. Not being able to save everyone, not being able to save anyone, sometimes. That Edwin was in awe of the Doctor was in no doubt. It was hard not to be. Abilene felt the same. But it was only after those failures when he and Abilene hid in their room and listened to the Time Lord rage and storm at an uncaring universe that Edwin was frightened of him as well. Abilene, Edwin said, and now he was an entirely different type of frightened, as he realised that this was it, the question he had been practising ever since they'd met. There'll be shuttles to your home hive from Phaethon's choice, or this was it. Or you could stay with me. Her mouth parts quivered, first in surprise and then in joy. I would like that, she burred. I would like that very much. Good. He had thought the adventures were over, but as she reached out a serrated forelimb, Edwin realised they were only just beginning. Good. The doctor coughed. Sorry, Edwin said, and grabbed his bag. Goodbye, doctor. Abilene reared up and let out the shrill shriek that was the traditional goodbye of her people, and then they stepped out of the TARDIS together and into the corridor of the space station. So enamoured was he of the feel of her chitin against his skin that it took Edwin a couple of seconds to realise that something was wrong. They were on the Phaethon's choice. There was the logo on the wall, the bright spiralling sunburst, but instead of gleaming white corridors and the ever-present hum of the plasmic harvesters, this passageway was yellowed by age and neglect, the paint peeling back like dead skin. Abilene's antennae twitched in the stale, dead air. Edwin! He was already running to a wall terminal, its screen faded and flickering, buzzing like a dying fly. It took an eternity to respond to his touch, but finally the date appeared in the patchy light. We've arrived five hundred years after I left, Edwin said. The station's been abandoned, left to fall into the gravity well of the sun. Horror stole over him. It was one thing travelling through time, but yet another to know that time had travelled on without him. Everyone he knew. Everyone was dead. Edwin, I'm so sorry, but at least it's easily fixed. Abilene rested a comforting claw on his shoulder. We can travel back to the right time, she turned. Doctor, I... The TARDIS was gone. Doctor? Luakmaha was a world at war. War was its natural state. It had been at war with its son for eons, gravitational fields and great licks of solar radiation polishing it like a gem in a jeweler's vice. These same forces had put the planet's crust at war with itself in the form of volcanoes and earthquakes, and once the rest of the universe had found out about the rare minerals created by the upheaval, they had brought their own war as well. Humanity had come for Trisonic Beryl to power their hyperdrives, and the Atraxi for snowflake diamonds, their ice ships churning the sky. The Rutans had come for Chisholm, the Gelf for Astonix, and then the Sontarans had shown up to fight everyone because they were upset at being left out. Ocelot had spent half her life trying to end the Lawakmaha War. 
Originally from a planet that had never known conflict, she'd enlisted on Lawakmaha as a medic, patching up leaking rutans just to learn scraps of their language, risking her life a hundred times to cajole, persuade, or downright bully anybody on any side into listening to talk of peace. A one-woman diplomatic task force, but even she had begun to believe it was hopeless, until the doctor arrived. Hopeless was the doctor's speciality. Armies of Luakmahar, please attend carefully. He'd parked the TARDIS in a ruined plaza, bombed to oblivion, literally in this case. It was now a crater so desolate it had been completely forgotten by every side. Beyond the timeship's doors was an empty wasteland of cooked stone and dead dust, but inside was civilization and honey light. On the console screens, tacticians, commanders, brood lords, and generals from around the planet yelled so quickly in so many languages that the TARDIS's translation circuits could barely keep up. The doctor just watched, one leg slung over an armrest like an indolent boy king. I imagine you are wondering why I hacked into your morning threatening each other sessions. Well, after finding the launch codes to all of your carefully hoarded nuclear weapons, he smiled, slow and wide as a contented cat. Ocelot had seen her share of fearless men. In her experience, they generally made equally fearless corpses. But it was a challenge, that smile. It was a dare, thrown against the entire universe. A grin that said, I see you. I see what you can do. Are you sure about this? She said out of the corner of her mouth. We should just put them in a room, without weapons, obviously, and make them talk. Big gestures, he whispered, without taking his eyes from the screens. That's what these people like. He swept suddenly from his seat, glaring at each leader as if trying to tattoo his words onto the inside of their heads. There has never been a ceasefire on Loakmahar, he said. Never a moment where you weren't at each other's throats, until now. Send the word to your troops. If one of you attacks the other, if so much as a single soldier fires a shot, every one of those carefully hoarded warheads ignites. Nuclear fire will consume the planet. You are here because you know value, and life is the most valuable thing of all. Your own lives, if nothing else. Now, instead of threatening each other, talk to each other. He muted the screens before they could respond. Do you think they'll do it? That was the question. It was the only question. One of the screens showed Loakmaha from orbit, a beautiful globe glittering with gems and the constant crackle of weapon fire. Ocelot had given half her life to this war and this world, but she had to believe there was a chance. And she did. She believed it because he believed it. It would go against everything the Sontarans hold dear and every instinct the Rutans have the doctor said contemplatively. The Atraxi have no masters but themselves. The Gelth care about nothing but finding a home for their souls. But at the end of it all, every species in the universe has a little voice in the back of their head that, no matter what, wishes to live. That's who I'm speaking to, Ocelot. That's what unites them. Well, she said, I hope you're right. The warheads exploded. From orbit, they did not look like detonations. They looked like cancer eating a healthy cell. Vast, spreading splodges of beige and brick-red that expanded from four separate sites, billowing up into the atmosphere like smoke against glass. 
it looked distant, like it was happening somewhere else. The interior of the TARDIS was silent for a very long time. Hmm, the doctor said eventually. The splodges were joining up, and new blots were joining them. There was a growing rumble now, not the background hum of the TARDIS, but the incandescent roar of approaching flame. I think maybe we should go. He spun to the controls, turning dials and flicking switches, and Ocelot just stared at the screens and at the planet consumed. Let me take you away from all this, the doctor said, and pulled a lever down. Irene was Ocelot's home world, and it had always known peace. It was nothing like Loakmaha. Loakmaha smelled like cordite and scorched stone, and Irene like roses and seawater. Loakmaha's sky was burnt orange and veined with missile trails, but Irene's was so blue it was almost purple, with a gentle, forgiving sun. Ocelot remembered why she hated it immediately. You're upset, the doctor said, following her out into the blue meadow. There was a city in the distance of floating orbs, delicate spires. Anything so bright and extravagant on Loakmaha would have been bombed in a heartbeat. I've upset you. Each word was careful, turned over and over like the components of a machine he wasn't sure he understood. What do you want me to say? She snapped. You bet a world on a roll of the dice, and it failed. It failed miserably. We should have talked to them. We should have... You did nothing but talk to them, he countered. Ocelot, you spent years trying to get those commanders to speak to each other. Do you think none of your messages, your demands, your pleas got through? They just didn't care. It's not a crime to want to cut your losses. She whirled on him. You cut our losses. Your gamble, not mine. She had to force her fingers to uncurl from fists. This is over, Doctor. I know we talked about other voyages, other journeys when the war was over, but I cannot look past this. Ocelot, you will. It fades after a while. You move on. I don't want to move on. He looked at her, shock pinching his features, and she shook her head. I'm done, Doctor. I'm sorry. This isn't tourism for me. Loakmaha was my life's work and you ended it. What will you do? He said, already turning away, one hand running down the majestic grandfather clock that was his TARDIS's current form. First shuttle out, probably, she said, the question draining away some of her anger. There's a lot of war in the galaxy. Irene doesn't need me. Oh, but it will. The doctor's face was hidden in shadow, pressed against the wooden grain of the clock. Not even a hundred years from now. I believe it'll be the Grom, or perhaps the Royal Mind. Oh, you'd hate them. Think rats, but without the charm. Millions of them, starving millions, descending on this lush, fat world. Doctor. She'd never heard his voice like that. Cold, dry, appraising, as if worldwide catastrophe was something faintly of interest. What are you? And then there's Mother Agape and the Witchwood War, and I was going to head there to stop them, with you, actually. But the thing is... Now he looked at her, and he looked like a stranger. It's a big universe. A really big universe. I can't be everywhere at once. And companions help me figure out which places matter most, keep me focused, that sort of thing. When I find someone else, it'll be their world that gets saved. She looked at him with horror. Doctor... Are you saying what I think you're saying? I'm saying, he whispered, his eyes gleaming in the light of the perfect, peaceful city, that we work well together, and that I saved your life, 
everyone on Awak Mahar died except for you. He snapped his fingers and the doors to the TARDIS opened wide. I'm saying you owe me, Ocelot. This adventure ends when I say it does. And so they went to the galaxy trees of the Cheem and ran afoul of an autumn orchestra in the city world of Hoster's Doom and dueled with cyborgs above lava pits and, with the patience of a soldier, Ocelot laughed at jokes and ran down corridors and, above all, watched the Doctor. Kandahar, the 11th century, a city on Sol Three known to its inhabitants as Earth, carved from sandstone, the sky baked blue and hard by the sun, the doctor had chosen Kandahar because he'd detected a dimensional rift spilling out carnivorous multiforms, and Ocelot had agreed because she'd seen the doctor's skill with computers and knew that a pre-technology world was the best bet for the plan she had in place. It was the height of the chaos. The dimensional rift was opening. In the city's main square, the sultan's soldiers were charging the multiforms and terrible howls mingled with the screams of men. The doctor was cobbling together some sort of last-ditch solution from cables and wires, and sparks were flying, and in that crucial moment, as the multi-queen reared and the Time Lord laughed in the face of death, Ocelot ran. She turned and ran. She dodged down an alleyway, slipping between overturned carts and spilled crates of grapes, ducking into a doorway as a multiform slithered past. Before she knew it, she was streets away. She stole a sheet from a washing line and wrapped it round herself to hide her strange clothes, her mind already racing. Earth, the eleventh century. She'd read up on it as soon as the doctor had mentioned it. It wasn't the most advanced civilization, but that was no reason to think she couldn't find somewhere to settle down, and frankly, she'd had her fill of advanced. Down streets, head low, making for the city's edge. Behind her, she could still hear the roars and snarls of the multiforms. Occasionally, civilians ran by her, and she hid her face, ducking into an alleyway whenever she saw soldiers. But Ocelot had spent a lifetime navigating war zones, and with a little luck. That noise. That noise that had, for the shortest of times, brought her hope. The TARDIS materialised, blocking the mouth of the alleyway, and the doctor came from it like an oncoming storm. You ungrateful child, he hissed. The things I've shown you, the places we've gone. I liked you, Ocelot. You were ready to do anything to achieve your goals. That's something I appreciate in an assistant. But this is a betrayal. And all for what? Some pointless, war-torn little planet? We spent too much time there as it was. If I hadn't... If you hadn't what? Ocelot said. But she already knew the answer. Maybe she always had. If you hadn't detonated the weapons yourself... If you hadn't scoured Loakmahar of all life. I did mean what I said, he responded casually. You get used to it. And, really, all this is my fault. I haven't explained myself properly at all. I was trying, he sighed, I was trying something different. Trying to be someone I'm not. Someone specific, actually. But I have to say it's turning out to be spectacularly unrewarding. It is nice having an audience, though. Someone to explain things to. I like explaining myself. People get so confused otherwise. Then explain yourself, Doctor, Ocelot said. There was a knife in her pocket. She'd stolen it at dinner weeks ago. If she could just get close enough. That's not my name, he said, and gave her that challenge of a smile. And, if you want to make a life here, what kind of friend would I be if I didn't let you go? Goodbye, Ocelot. 
Her brow furrowed with surprise, but he was already inside the TARDIS, and the sound of the door shutting was the most welcome thing she had ever heard. With a creaking wheeze, it dematerialized, revealing the insectile, clicking shape of the multiform that had been lurking behind it. The final casualty of the Lawakmaha War sighed and drew her knife. It was a new day. Cade had to tell themselves that, or they'd go mad. The ship, Nowhere's Eye, didn't have days or nights or even time, really, beyond the ticking of the onboard chronometer. It didn't have those things because you needed stars for sunrises, and they'd flown Nowhere's Eye to a place where there were no stars at all. The doctor called it Nunspace. Cade had always been fascinated by it. The universe was expanding in every direction, every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day, and Nunspace was the vast blankness it was expanding into. Beyond the universe, outside everything, if Cade looked out of the portholes at the rear of the ship, they could see it. Distant splotches of light, the hard points of stars. If they looked out of the front, there was just infinite black. It was a hell of a feeling, or it had been for two weeks. Now Cade didn't feel anything at all. They rose and dressed quickly, activating the morning routine scans. Every captain and their ship felt a connection, but for Cade, it was literal. Wireless linkages connected their brain directly to the ship. Whirring connectors had replaced their fingers. In a way, Cade was the eye, and the eye was Cade. They felt the ship's senses as their own senses, felt the thrum of its plasma core as their own beating heart. Nowhere's eye was completely automated. It had to be. It was unsurprisingly difficult to find a crew for a ship willing to trawl out to the edge of everything. Ships' navigation systems failed in Nunspace. Scanners broke down, sensors brought back ghost returns, the engines misfired, failing to catch as if even the laws of physics didn't reach out here. The only reason Nowhere's Eye could even venture this far was because it was tethered to an automated boy by a braided Atlassian leash, clinging to the universe like a drowning child to a lifeline. Just one of the innovations the Doctor had supplied. He was on the bridge of Nowhere's Eye when Cade arrived, pacing the great glass sphere, stepping round the hulking masses of electro-ganglia and gloam lines. That ever-present expression of disdain he wore when he looked at Nowhere's Eye no longer fazed them. They knew the ship was nothing fancy. You had to turn sideways to pass down even the widest of corridors. Every surface was either gummy or grimy, every engine start was accompanied by showers of sparks, and the captain's chair was just a torn couch with its stuffing leaking out. He can sniff as much as he wants, they thought. He didn't even have a ship, and the battered old grandfather clock that seemed to be his only luggage wasn't going to get him very far. Dr. Cade, he said, folding his arms, there was a jittery, uneven energy to him, like a mongoose or a rat, that had only worsened as the weeks in Nunspace went on. Cade had been broken when he found them, their research grant nearly gone, and nothing, literally nothing, to show for it. His help had allowed them to penetrate deeper into Nunspace than ever before, but that didn't mean they needed to like him. How's the tether holding up? Well, we're not tumbling helplessly into the void, they said wryly. So, until you hear me screaming at the top of my lungs, we're generally okay. Though there's one sense of return I'd like to investigate on a heading of... No, the doctor said. We stay here. Doctor, 
I have my own reasons for being out here. That, until one of my checks bones, is entirely irrelevant. Cade fell silent. You'll get your tour of nothingness, Dr. Cade. Be patient. Isn't being out here enough? He waved a hand expansively. Think of it. On one side, a whole universe of motion and life and sound and love, and on the other, absolute nothingness, deeper and more perfectly empty than space itself. This is the only place in existence where you can truly say you have your back to the wall. Yeah, Cade muttered. Great. What did you say your doctorate was in again? I didn't. He padded towards them, and, as always, they couldn't quite suppress a flinch at that sudden fearful energy. Cade had been of the opinion, ever since the doctor had hired them, that he was only ever really regarding them with a portion of his attention. They were a little afraid of what would happen if he focused it all. In a million years, the universe will have expanded this far, and the place will be dreadfully crowded. You should buy property, get it cheap. But, for now, just enjoy the peace and quiet. You said it yourself, Doctor, Cade said. I'm a person of science. I'd just like some extra data. About you. Why this spot? What's out here? What are you looking for? Sometimes science is just asking the right question at the right time. I'm not looking for anything, he said. I'm waiting. A phone rang. Cade knew their ship from ball screw to brake lights. They had repaired and rebuilt it more times than they could count. And, even though there were parts from a dozen alien technologies and twice that many scrapyards, they knew there was nothing on the eye that made the noise of a twentieth-century telephone. Ah, the doctor said, grinning wide. I think it's for me. He darted over to the grandfather clock and opened its door. Cade frowned. It must have been deeper than they realised, because the slender man dipped almost his entire body into it before reappearing with a phone on a long cord. He straightened and breathed deep. Hello? You're using my name. Oral insert, wired senses, everything that the eye detected, Cade felt. They barely had to strain to hear the speaker on the other end of the line, and the icy rage nearly blew out their circuits. I wanted to see what it was like, the doctor said. And, I have to say, you make it look a lot more fun than it actually is. So much whining and complaining and dying. How do you have the patience? You have no idea what I've gone through, putting your messes right, unpicking what you did to New Paris. I like to think I improved, rescuing survivors from Loakmahar. There's some of it left. This is what happens when I don't build the weapons. And using my name, using my name. Well, I do technically have one more doctorate than you. Master. The voice on the other end of the line hissed, and Cade's client seemed to stretch at the sound of the name, like a cat testing the reach of its claws. It fit him far better than Doctor. The smugness of it. Why have you been doing this? Why have you dragged the ship out here? What is this? Oh, Doctor, the Master sniggered. You know what this is. It's a trap. Cade had become used to ignoring the senses because out here there was nothing to sense. But it came through their connection to the eye like the first touch of sun, a rising warmth inside their chest. Cade expanded their senses through the systems of the eye, their modifications and enhancements reading the non-space as if they were the ship itself. It was the tether. The tether had begun to glow. Plasmic beacons were revving to life at intervals along its length, like perfectly spaced stars, like a line of Christmas lights draped out across the universe's edge. 
I had to be sure you'd come, the master said. Using your name was the only way. I had to prove it to you. Prove what? That I can master being you. And the nun's face opened its eyes. Cade's father had been an eel farmer, a broke and tired and angry eel farmer who hated his life and hated his kid and hated the slippery, slithering way he made his living. Only once had Cade been brought down to the dingy harbour where their father and the other villagers raked great writhing masses of the horrid things out of the water, and the sight of the swarming threads had made Cade vomit on the spot. That was what this looked like. Thousands of sets of crimson eyes were opening in the nun space, like a whole nebula being birthed all in one moment, and yet nothing was showing up on their senses. The caliginosity, the doctor whispered. You found a nest. We did always wonder where they came from, the master responded. I had planned to bring just one to earth and let it loose, and then I thought bigger. That's your problem, doctor. Too concerned with the little things. Why would I use one caliginosity to devour your favourite planet when I could lead a million of them out of the void of nun space to pick the whole universe apart? The tether, Cade realised. They'd thought it was their lifeline back to the universe, but it wasn't. It was a lure. They nested and they ate, and reality unravelled so much that they couldn't find their way back. There was a terrible, shining fascination in the master's eyes, like a child who'd found a new way to bend the limbs of a toy. Like ants losing a scent, so I've given it back to them. Already Cade could feel the eye straining as something began to drain it of power. Lights flickered. They could feel parts of their head going numb as systems shorted out or shut down. They reached out to disable the beacons, but pain flung them back onto the captain's chair. Oh, no, you don't, the master said, dangling the phone from his hand, as Cade clutched their head and fought a wave of agony that rocked both them and their ship. I've had plenty of time to worm my way into your systems, Cade. Yours and the eyes. Couldn't have the bait wriggling off the hook. Through their senses in the ships, Cade could sense the caliginosity swarming the way those eels had whenever their father threw them meat. Lamprey-like mouths affixed themselves to the hull of the eye, so cold they blistered the steel, and Cade shrieked as if it was their own skin. They were going to die. They were going to die, and the caliginosity would climb back into the universe and pick it to threads. Gotcha, the doctor said. What? Cade and the master said together. That's your problem, master. That's the thing you always get wrong. What? The master snapped. What did I get wrong? The speaker was smiling. Cade could feel it. This isn't about us. And through faltering senses, through failing scans, Cade saw it. A host of ships, bright and silver against the infinite dark, spinning down upon the swarm, blinding spears of light lashed out, and one of the plasmic beacons died. The caliginosity fell back in a confused, teeming mass, and a voice cut through the searing cold, hot enough to light the whole of Nunspace itself. This is Cassie Belmont and the third Neptunian airborne reporting for duty, targeting these gross worm things now. This is Ocelot of the Luakmaha Retaliation Alliance here, with Sontarans, Rutans, Gelf and humans together to lend a hand. General Stanner, stop firing on the Rutans, for God's sake! 
No, 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 the master snarled, but Cade had pushed themselves to their feet. Their client had somehow got into their systems, rendered them unreliable, overridden their controls, but they could still jettison the tether manually, even if it meant their own death. They pelted down corridors, seeing through the eye's sensors, as Cassie Belmont and her squadron directed attack after attack on each beacon, and an armada of alien ships sought to drive the caliginosity back with sheer firepower. Panic thrilled through them as they saw that every volley seemed simply to swell the writhing worms more. They seemed to feast on each apocalyptic burst of light, unravelling it to its constituent atoms and swallowing them down. With the day Cade was having, it was no surprise at all to see two strangers kneeling at a control panel on the second deck. Hi, the man said, rubbing his clean-shaven chin. My name's Edwin, plasmic engineer by trade. We kill all the lights. We might just stop these things. The grasshopper lady beside him waved. You won't defeat them. All the colour left Edwin's face. The insect beside him hissed like a punctured kettle. Cade very slowly turned round. It was the master. The glacial disdain with which he had treated Cade and their ship was tattered now, and, though he stood tall and grinning as if this was his moment of victory, Cade could see through the mask to the childish madness underneath, the wounded pettiness no amount of affected dignity could hide. There was a gun in his hand. You won't defeat them, he repeated. They're like nothing you've ever faced before. It took me months to understand them, to control them myself, and you just don't have the t- Someone hit him very hard on the back of the head. The master fell to his knees, and behind him was a very angry-looking woman with a length of pipe in her hand. Except I was standing right beside you when you defeated one, wasn't I? Fay, the master gasped. Oh, when he asks, you come. No, you pillock, she snapped, and kicked his gun away to land beside Cade's feet. I came for everybody else, everyone you're putting in danger. That's why the doctor's here, too. And, between two beats of Cade's heart, a blue box materialised in the centre of the corridor. It was sleek and shiny, though they could see that the corners were worn and a light shone from its top, a clean and soft light that seemed the opposite of the teeming darkness outside. A figure stepped out. In the flickering light of the passageway, Cade could barely make them out. Trying to be me, master, and yet you missed the most basic part. The figure shook their head. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about them, their lives, their choices, and whatever I can do to help. I care about them, but you don't. That's what you get wrong. That's why you lose. A hundred million horrible monsters on your side, and you're still always going to be outnumbered. And suddenly the whole eye lurched to the side. The pitted metal wall of the chamber bulged under the weight of long mandibles. Cade screamed at the intrusion. Steel tore and a head shoved through, a blind, snapping fist of a snout thrashing desperately in its efforts to get at them. Cade could feel that desperation, that hunger. It had been in the cold for a very long time, and now heat and light were within its grasp. The master bolted. He just bolted. He scrambled to his feet, pushing Faye aside as he fled. Cade expected Edwin or Faye to give chase, but instead he just turned back to the plasmic beacon, and Faye was hefting her pipe, and somewhere Cassie was laughing, and Ocelot was keeping the peace, 
and even though there was a monstrosity scrabbling and snapping just metres from them, it was the doctor that Cade turned to for help. What do... what do we do? Well, the doctor said, you know this ship better than anyone else, so first we're going to stop the master, and then we're going to figure out an extremely complicated and very last-minute solution that's going to break about four laws of physics, but look very good while doing it. That's what we're going to do. Okay, Cade said. The monster was nearly in with them now, and there was a whole lot more behind. But I meant right now. Oh, said the doctor, grinning. Right now? We run. This audiobook was produced and published by Penguin Books Limited. Recording copyright 2018.